So uh, there is a uh, there's a book that is yeah you know, it's it's funny because I've I've read a a a good number of books but uh, there's only been a few that I've been like super amped about and one of them was uh, this one that. Uh, Pastor Frank, he, he actually gave me his copy of it that was printed like in the late 1960s. And you could tell because it had that ugly like mustard greenish yellow like cover on it with like argyle and stuff. I wanted to find one that had that cover on it, but you can't. You can just find this one now. So, um, but I loved it so much. And so I went and I got my own copy of it. And uh, I think I immediately knew I was going to like it uh, because when you go in it, it's this guy, like for his graphics, it's literally like things he would draw on a blackboard. And then he just had them like turned into graphics for his book, which was kind of funny. But it's dense. It's not all that long. It's like 250 pages, but it's like, it's it's dense, you know? And it's got some kind of like big, hard concepts in it. Um, but one of the things I really like about what they, uh, about what is being pushed in here is, he starts out by saying that um, that when you look at the story of the Bible, like the story of Christianity as we know it, um, in general, Christians will kind of separate into four different categories. And you'll have the first who will look at it and say, well, the real story of Christianity really starts at like the resurrection and at Pentecost. Because at that point in time, that's when you have the Holy Spirit, and that's really the beginning of, you know, kind of, you know, I guess kind of the the the, rain, the the ringing in of the new covenant and everything. So uh, that's really where it starts and everything before that is just context for what happens, um, you know, what happens kind of post-resurrection and post-Pentecost. This is a very, uh, the, 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 the big term for it is what you'd call like dispensationalism, you know, where it's the whole idea of, you know, we live in a new dispensation. Uh, and everything before then is just kind of telling us what got us to that point. But if you do that, uh, that introduces a key problem. That if you look at it and you say Christianity only really has relevance if, uh, you know, starting at the resurrection, that implies that there wasn't really any purpose to anything Jesus was doing unless sin existed, which kind of introduces this weird like subservience where it's like Jesus now needs, needs a cause to exist and that causes sin. And that's kind of a weird way of looking at God. So that's not really right. And so some people will look at it and say, well, of course, that's not where it is. It's, you have an Old Testament, you have a New Testament, right? So like, you know, Christianity really starts at New Testament. And that everything before that, again, is kind of, you know, context lets us know why you needed to have a New Testament. Uh, but it's really New Testament is really the part that Christians um, are really more concerned with. And to be honest, this is something that you could definitely see. This is something that I think is, is a little bit easier to see in how a lot of churches do things. Because you don't have to go very far to find a lot of churches that when it comes to their, like, you know, who we should be today and how we should live our lives and everything, um, aside from maybe, like, cherry-picking some things, sometimes in, sometimes out of context in the Old Testament, like, they'll, they'll kind of just do everything in the New Testament. And the Old Testament becomes almost intimidating. So if I'm going to do a Bible study, it's going to be in the New Testament. If I'm going to sit here and do a lesson about life application, it's going to be in the New Testament. Everything's going to be in the New Testament. Um, and you can see that. And that's kind of an example of this whole, you know, looking at Christianity as only really being relevant starting in the New Testament. The problem is you have these pesky things like, you know, the beginning of the John where it says like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And you end up having that where you say, huh, well, that seems to imply that this whole New Testament stuff existed well before Matthew 1.1. So that can't really be the case. So 
it doesn't start the resurrection. It doesn't start really even at Matthew 1.1. So you end up saying, okay, well, maybe the story of Christianity, what we really care about starts at Genesis 1.1, the beginning of the book, right? Because then you got the totality of the book. And what more can you expect someone to believe other than that whole book? But that also introduces kind of this weird, this weird problem with our God and our concept of God and how we view God. If you look and you say God only exists from one cover of the book to the other cover of the book, then you end up with this situation where God is only bound to creation. That God's relevance is only, is only relevant because of everything around us. So it's kind of in the same way that you know some people will kind of make it sound like Jesus doesn't have a purpose unless sin is there. They'll sit here and say, well, God doesn't really have a purpose unless creation is there. And so what people are missing out on is what this author of this book, Deverne Fromke, is, is basically pointing out, which is that God's existence and the purpose of our faith exists well before everything in Genesis 1.1. And when you stop and you think about that, and then you actually follow that through to a lot of different things about how you see life and how you perceive life and how you pursue your own identity and purpose and all that kind of stuff, it actually has a pretty radical way of changing your perspective. Because what you start realizing is this, that everything in creation is just simply a demonstration of the glory that is God that existed before creation was around. And I want you to think about the implications of that. That what that means is that when people look around at everything around them, when you look at you know things that are beautiful and things that are around us and complexity and all that, that all that stuff exists as a testimony to God's greatness. And so the purpose of creation isn't creation itself. That's a very like secular way of looking at things, that the purpose of what you're doing, the purpose of who you are, what you should be fighting for, what your mentality should be about, everything is all focused on some endpoint, which is creation itself. Even a lot of Christians will do this, like with well-meaning intentions, but they'll sit here and they'll look and they'll say like, you know, we need to be sitting here and, you know, focusing on giving, giving God to the, giving God to the world and to the masses and everything so that, you know, uh, we can kind of, you know, save this world. You know, you'll hear a lot of people talk about that. We need to save our nation. We need to save our world. We need to, you know, try to turn uh, everything around us back to God. And you kind of look at that and go, right. But like the point isn't the nation. The point isn't the world. The point is actually something bigger than that. And so if the nation or the world is going to be saved, it's only going to be saved for the glory of God. If it's not for the glory of God, if it's for the glory of man, so we can turn around and say, look how great our evangelical movement is, or if it's so that we can look at it and say, look how great our church is or something like that, then it's actually being done for the wrong purposes. God's purpose is and is only his glory. And it can be easy to look at God and maybe kind of say, well, that makes God sound like an arrogant jerk. But I want you to think about that for a second. If God is infinitely glorious, if he's infinitely perfect, if he's infinitely complete in all of his ways, then what else would God be most concerned with? If God is infinitely glorious, then shouldn't God be all about his own glory? Because being all about anything else would be less. It would, be, it, would, it would cheapen who he is. So everything we see around us is about God's glory. And if you, if you want you know, some very in-depth like support of that statement and everything, here's the book. You can borrow it and go read it. Good luck. But 
What I want to focus on today is kind of how that ends up actually shifting our perspective on things around us. So first of all, when you look at this fundamental interpretation, I'll give you a little bit of like supporting evidence, so to speak, for this. So, the, so in Luke 19 uh, verses uh, 31 through 40, you end up seeing this right here. This is something we talked about a few weeks ago, so it should sound familiar. Um, we end up seeing this, Jesus going in, the triumphant entry, right? Uh, especially since we're about to go into Lent and everything. It's appropriate. Triumphant entry into Jerusalem, you end up seeing this. Uh, now he, Jesus, came near the path down uh, the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And when you look at that statement, you have to ask yourself, was God trying, you know, was, was Jesus trying to say that the stones were sentient, that the stones had like a soul and that they were going to, you know, go and start acting? You know, I'm sure he could have made animate what was in animate if he wanted to, but that, that would be kind of a weird read of this. So instead, you have to look at it in terms of the existence, the purpose of the stones themselves. If the stones are going to cry out and worship, is it going to be because they're literally going to scream? Or is this, um, is this statement pointed more at exactly what we're talking about right here? That the fact that these stones even exist at all is a demonstration of His glory. And this is one of the reasons, and I'll reinforce a point that I made when we were going over this piece of scripture a while back, that I think it's fascinating to think of God who created all things, creating the, the, the materials or the stone or the whatever it is that would end up constituting the hill of Golgotha that Jesus Christ himself would walk up. And imagining that God isn't looking at these stones and cursing these stones because he knows these stones are going to be the things that hold the cross that his son is going to die on. But instead him creating these stones and doing it deliberately because he understands that there is a purpose and an intention to their creation. That these stones are going to be a demonstration of his glory. And when you start piecing that together, you start looking at it and saying, what more glorious thing is there than seeing Christ, the Son of God, crucified on a cross, and everything that would come from that and come downstream of that is the ultimate display of God's glory. Yet, you can be assured that as everything was happening, everybody around him was not thinking glory. You know, you would, you would excuse like the, the, the human aspects of, of Christ at the time from not sitting here and jumping for joy because, you know what, I'm going to be able to experience this glory and it's fantastic. But instead, there's a sense of purpose. It's a sense of purpose that provided an endurance to what Christ, what everybody around him was currently going through. And so that sense of purpose becomes important. It's not just a matter of some deep theological concept in you know, somebody's book that they were going to write uh, you know, centuries and so, centuries later. It's something that we actually have to seize hold of because it's going to be what helps us to persist. Life is not always going to be great. It's not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to have these like great happy endings or anything. But when that happens, there's something that helps drive us through to the end. And that thing that helps us drive us through is the sense of purpose. Understanding that whatever we are going through is something that has a greater intention. The intention being demonstration of God's glory. Think about individuals that you have known who have gone through and experienced uh, experience, you know, terrible things in their own life, especially those individuals who have a relationship with God. How you've been able to see God glorified in the midst of everything that they were experiencing. 
this was something that uh, last Friday at our, our Bible group, you know, was was kind of coming up. Where times where we see people, we see family members go through things, and you know, at the time you may not get in this deep theological conversation, but after the fact, you end up looking back on it, and you can see where God was actually, in fact, glorified by either the actions of other individuals or by how that person going through whatever they're going through was able to endure. You end up seeing how that, that motivates and animates other people to have a deeper relationship with God. So what I'd like to connect for you is I'd like to look at those rocks. If you look at those rocks and you sit here and say those rocks, creation itself is created for the purpose of demonstrating God's glory. And then you connect that with something else. That's another one of those verses that I say over and over again, because it's one of those ones I think would be useful if you kind of remember, is that Genesis 1.27, when it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And when you look at that, understand God did creation so that it could be a demonstration of his glory. Even more so than that, you end up having us being an image of God. So if that's the case, then what is our ultimate purpose? Our ultimate purpose is to be a demonstration of God's glory. And that's something that should be empowering, but not empowering because of anything that we're going to do. This isn't a matter of saying like, you're a demonstration of God's glory. So you know what? You could go out and get your raise. You could go out and do this or do that. It's a matter of looking at it and saying you have a sense of purpose. And the idea of what you end up deciding is important in your life, not important in your life, the things that you, you hold on to to make you feel like you are valuable or the things that make you feel like you're, you're making a meaningful impact in this life shouldn't be judged by any kind of worldly metric. It should be judged by what your intended purpose is, just like if you're a tool. If you're a tool and you were built to be a hammer, but somebody wants to use you like a crowbar, being a bad crowbar doesn't make you unuseful. Your purpose was to be a hammer. And so in the same way, there are many, 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 many things in this world that we will try to do. There are many things that maybe we could do that we will, we will endeavor to do. And some things will do good and some things that will do bad. But your purpose is to demonstrate God's glory. And when you start looking at it that way, all of a sudden you start stressing about, I won't say less things, but I'll say different things. Instead, you start stressing about the fact that I want to make certain that I'm, as Paul says, living a life that is worthy of the calling that God has given me. That is, a, it's an interesting phrase that Paul uses over and over again in his epistles to live a life that's worthy. And it really gets to this sense of purpose. Living a life worthy doesn't mean that you prove that you deserve salvation. It means that you understand that your purpose in life is to glorify God. And so in that, in the things I do, whether really big things that I, that I take on or whether in my small little interactions I have every day with different individuals, I will look to seek to further God's glory just a little bit. This is something that is reinforced by Paul. He talks about us being an image of God's glory. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's kind of odd to talk about, I think, because so often churches fall into this either like this or that kind of thing. Like we're, we're very, uh, we're very like binary individuals in our society, right? You're liberal or you're conservative, you're Democrat or you're progressive, you know, you're either for something or you're against something. That's how we view everything. And so in the church, people look at things the same way. Well, they'll say you're either somebody who looks at individuals and says, you need to understand that you're worthless. 
that you're, you know, totally depraved, that you, 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 you can't do anything on your own and you just need to be beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down, because you need to be humble. So beat down, beat down, beat down. And then you have other churches that go full bore the other way, which is like, you know what? God wants you to be prosperous. God wants you to be able to have this. You need to be just filled with the power of Christ so you can be able to take on all the things that you endeavor to do. And, and it's like there's these two extremes. And I'm not saying churches don't exist in the middle, but a lot of times this is kind of what these conversations get boiled down to. Instead, what I'm trying to say is, no, 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 there is power in what you're doing. There is great, tremendous value in the things that you are taking on in life. But that purpose is not an end unto yourself. It's not something that is there just so you can feel better about yourself. Frequently, you may get in the midst of different opportunities to glorify God and uh, not feel super great. I can tell you the number of times, a super minor example, but I mean like the number of times where I've sat here and, you know, dealing with all the issues with like the leak roof and stuff like that where you know what when it's 11 p.m. at night and I'm sticking up stuff in the the windows and everything and I, I leave to you know so hoping that you know the place isn't going to get flooded or whatever when I'm doing that uh it doesn't feel very glorious but you know what is awesome is being able to you know kind of down the stream you know hear about individuals who say like you know what I came into church this week and I heard what I really really wanted to hear and that really really uh, animated me. Even if it's something that you look at it and say, had nothing to do with the message, the guy up here giving a message or anything. It was the music. It was an interaction between other individuals that you were able to have. When you hear that down, down the line and you sit here and go, man, sitting here and getting a bunch of masking tape and trash bags and putting them up in windows didn't feel glorious at the time. But it enables all these things down the road where you get to see that little piece that you get to contribute. And that's something that gives you a remarkable amount of motivation and energy to be able to do things you didn't think you could do. It allows you to be able to endure things that you didn't think that you could actually endure. So this whole thing, this idea of looking at your purpose, it again, fundamentally shifts your perspective. And I think the very fundamental shift that it does is it takes you from a place of saying that we are people with God to saying we're people of God. Those are two separate statements. And if I'm a person with God, there's a lot of things I could do. Shoot, there are a lot of people in the Bible who were not like good Christian folk, who were not good Jewish folk that had God with them and did things. There's pagan nations that God, God, you know, it says use those people to be able to sit here and exact his, you know, kind of punishment on different groups and whatnot. So rest assured, being a person with God, like kind of to the side, isn't necessarily something to, you know, be envious of, but being a person of God to understand that everything that you are in your purpose and everything that you focus on, your sense of what's worth the sacrifice is driven by this purpose to glorify God. Now that's something special. And I think this is where you start understanding these, you know, radical concepts of, you know, people being willing to sacrifice themselves or sacrifice things materially, people being willing to sacrifice their own happiness, or joy or whatever because they see something greater. Whenever I think about the, the, the times, and again, not ragging on people, so if any of you have ever said it, I'm not getting on you, but like, it, you know, the number of times that I've had somebody like come up to me when I'm, you know, we're sitting here and we're doing things, you know, for a church or youth or whatever, and they sit here and go like, Joseph's just going to burn out. We're just worried about you and everything. I kind of look at this and a part of me just goes like, Right, I got it. And you know what? I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, there's not like a toll that's taken whenever, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and staying up late and doing things for you. There were times, there was one time in particular, I can remember, I got off a ship, got on a plane from Guam, came back, by it's a 36-hour trip, came back over here, 
uh, dropped my bags off at my house, didn't change my clothes, and then I went in to go do youth. Because I was just like, there was that sense of purpose. It felt wrong knowing that the people God had called me to deal with were over here, and I was just over here what? Like, resting? Is this my purpose to rest? I just said clearly when I get the amount of rest I'm supposed to, I clearly feel very bad. So clearly that's not my purpose. But, you know, the, the purpose is to do this other thing. And sometimes, even though rest is a very important thing, and, you know, being willing to recharge, to go to the mountain like Elijah did, and to get, you know, regroup, to be strengthened by God is absolutely a piece of it. At the same time, I think sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that there is this entitlement to comfort. Even good, convicted Christian folk will end up looking and kind of, putting a bound on what they feel God is calling them to do because of what they feel they are capable of. Then there's discernment, but then there's also copping out. And sometimes I feel like God may, yes, even today, even in America, even in like our society where we're so advanced and we don't have to deal with things people dealt with 2,000 years ago, sometimes God might be calling you to self-sacrifice a little bit. Sometimes maybe that is a part of it. And you have to be willing to do it. Even if God doesn't call you to do it, you have to be willing to do it. And so I guess as evidence of that, I would point to these things that we end up seeing in Philippians that I think are things that sound very empowering, but yet when you actually have the opportunity to do it, frequently people will sit here and then step back and go like, right, but that's just like a metaphor Paul was using, right? He wasn't being literal when he said that, but you see things like this. What I have often considered ever since as a teenager is like, this is my life verse. If you ever had, you know, one of those things where people were like, what's your life verse in the Bible that motivates you? This was the thing that was always my life verse. Philippians 1.21 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you look at that, you look at the essence of that verse that is something that doesn't say for me to live is Christ and to die is, is gain, dot, 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 with other caveats. I'll tell you what the dot, dot, dot is. The following verses after verse 21 don't walk that message back. It almost sounds nearly suicidal, to be honest with you. In verse 22 through 26, it says this, Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, but I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that because of my coming to you again your boasting in Jesus Christ may abound and I just love this because you see this picture of an individual who's saying no if you really believe all this Jesus stuff and you believe the God stuff you're not going to look at it and say well no 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 I want to preserve myself for what I'm doing right now and everything instead you're going to look at it and say no, it'd be better if I could go to this glory in the future a place that's devoid of time a place that's devoid of hurt and pain and circumstances and all these different things a place where you are unified with your God where this glory that we're built to be a part of is something that we get to dwell in just constantly, that would absolutely, if you actually honestly believe this stuff, and it's not just something you, you're living with God over here to the side, but you understand this is what you're doing, that would be better. No doubt about it. No caveats. But we have a purpose. All of creation has a purpose, which means your life has a purpose. And everything that you're doing, creation in your life and everything, is to demonstrate God's glory. So I guess I'd say this, you as a soul, as an individual that was created 
you basically have two main phases of existence. You have two forms. Okay, we're going to get to dwell in glory, okay? We're going to be able to be a part of glory and be in that, in that, that, that place where we're, we're unified with the ultimate glory of God in everything. But for a time, we are here to demonstrate God's glory. So we're in the demonstration phase. And as you're doing that, if you're going to do it, do it right. And so we're here in whatever position God has placed us in, in whatever circumstances, in whatever stage of life, to be somebody that demonstrates God's glory. If you want to know why, to me, the most compelling argument that you so infrequently hear made for the sanctity of life, whether it's people talking about, you know, things about, you know, sanctity of life, like unborn life or, you know, kind of decisions people make or society about whatever, whatever it is, you know, the most compelling argument for the sanctity of life is this right here, that the purpose of creation is not our own means. The purpose of creation is the glory of God's power and his greatness and his goodness. And so if that is the case, then none of us have any right to sit here and get in the way of that purpose. Lest you have any confusion about that, you can go through Old Testament story after story after story story in the New Testament. You can go out, you can go to the in Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and look at what happens when people stand up against the purpose of God. That there is a purpose to everything around us, and that purpose is this this ephemeral thing called glory, where we get to demonstrate how good and how gracious God is. And so that starts driving us to say, you know what? I hope at a human level that God never asks me to sacrifice everything. I hope God never asks me to sacrifice myself, anything involving my, my, my family, any, any, like I, I don't, I'm, I'm weak. I want comfort. I want prosperity. I want all of these things. I want, you know, these things that we all talk about and, and we all try to pursue. But at the same time, I understand that's not my purpose. My purpose is to glorify God. And so what that means is that so long as God has given me breath, so long as God has given me a family and he has given me things in my life and opportunities and all that, I will orient all of those things, not for my own gain, but for the demonstration of the glory of God through all the ways that God's glory shines through. I think that this is something that provides you a great sense of endurance especially beyond your current life circumstances. One of the, uh, one of the, the testimonies I remember hearing at a youth thing I went to was somebody who popped up and they were an individual that um, uh, I think I've shared years in the past was like severely disabled and they've been disabled the whole life. So it's kind of one of these classic things where somebody who like from very, very super young age, like, you know, newborn was already severely disabled. And it's kind of one of these stories that you hear about sometimes where it's like they're severely disabled. The doctor's like, mm, it's probably only going to, you know, probably won't make it out of the hospital. But then somehow the baby made it out of the hospital. And they're like, well, you know, just so you know, it's like severely disabled. So may not make it, you know, too far beyond. And the child made it far beyond that, you know, and eventually got to the point where they didn't think, that the kid was going to be ambulatory at all. But eventually with the assistance of like walkers and stuff was able to actually like move around a little bit, was able to end up being in school. So you look at that and go, that right there would be enough of a testimony. A baby that shouldn't even even made it out of the hospital is now in like school with friends and stuff like that. But yet then you start dealing with the fact that, you know, teenagers are kind of little like psychopaths, right? 
And so they can be mean to each other. And so you end up having these, this, this one severely disabled teen that is amongst other people that has a walker, right? And so ends up getting picked on and everything. And it's just incessant time after time after time after time. And they said that eventually they were at school and there was something where a teacher thought that they were being, I guess, helpful, kind of doing that whole, let me just give you a dose of reality so you're prepared for the world and you can overcome. And kind of did the whole thing and just said, you just have to understand that like you're going to be a burden on the people around you, you know, like that, that's just something you need to be aware of. And, you know, if you're aware of that, then you can, you know, think of ways that you can do things to contribute to society. But all that teenager heard was you're going to be a burden for the rest of your life. And so this individual that was a good individual had gone to church and everything sat here and said, then it'd be better for me not to be here. And had decided they were going to go home and that they were going to commit suicide. And in a moment of clairvoyance, they said they actually called one of their young life leaders to talk. And when they had this conversation, the young life leader went over this story in John chapter 9. So it's when Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was, we've already covered, that was kind of the thinking back then. You know, if, if you're blind, it's because you must have sinned. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's glory might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who, are, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. And this individual said that, kind of as they were going over that, they thought about it and they just said, uh, you know, just kind of a <laughs> motivating but heartbreaking thing to hear at the same time where they said, you know, if this is the case and this is really true, maybe the reason why I am having to go through what I'm having to go through so that God's glory might be displayed through me. And when you end up looking at that, that's, that's the kind of thing that you can look at your own life circumstances and kind of say, maybe whatever I'm going through is something that I'm having to endure so that God's glory can be displayed through whatever it is I'm having to go through, whatever it is I'm having to endure. That is the radical shift in perspective that you're able to have when you look at your life as being something more than just what the world is. If all that you're after and all you're all about is just the things that the world kind of truly values, then yeah, sure, there's a whole lot of hopelessness. You can sit here and have hope as long as you still got a career, as long as you still got some, some, some kind of energy, as long as you, you know, still have some, some kind of material goods or means, then you know what, you still have value to somebody, so you should keep on going. And if you don't have any of that, then you just need to accept that you're going to be a burden to other people. But when you start looking at just, just even the, the concept of creation, the fabric of the universe as we know it as being something that exists for the singular purpose of displaying God's glory, you look at it and say an individual with even a single breath left in them can be a display of God's immense power and his immense compassion and his immense love. So I think this challenges us to reassess what we view as important, to reassess what we think is, is, is worth it, what we think makes us a worthwhile individual. It's not 
the skills that you can have, and it's not going to be the opportunities that you even necessarily have. It's not going to be anything that even a lot of religious organizations will sit here and say, well, you know, we can do these and, and train you up and do all this stuff. And if you do that, then you will have value and purpose in God's eyes. The fact that you are even here, that you exist, that your heart is beating right now is a demonstration of God's immense mercy and his love. The fact that he did not wipe creation from the start and say, you know what? I think it'd be better for me to have a, uh, a glorious creation that's perfect, doesn't sin, and is a bunch of robots. That should be signal enough to you that even in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your injuries and your decrepancy, in the midst of whatever it is you think makes you lesser, there is opportunity there and there is intent and there's deliberate sense of purpose that God is looking at you in whatever state you are in and says, you have purpose and it's not necessarily even the purpose that you can see it's the purpose that I can see and so our jobs then become not trying to be whatever we think makes us most valuable but instead trying to seek and trying to listen and trying to approach the altar and approach the word with such a heart that we say God I want you to reveal to me how I can further display your glory Maybe that's one mission and one calling. Maybe it's something that changes every single day. But it requires us to actually be willing to step back from our own sense of identity, our own sense of ego and confidence, and be willing to instead look at it and say, God, shape me and make me and communicate to me how I can live out my purpose to show your glory to the world around me. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for... We pray for insights. We pray for some sort of clairvoyance and clarity to be able to, to see how, God, how, 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 how you want to display yourself in us. Help us to see how you are trying to work in our lives, to communicate to us, to, to speak to people around us so that, so that we can know how to respond. Help build us up. Help motivate us to, to endure with this, this, this identity that's built in you. And God, please bless us with the opportunity to be able to see this glory that you are demonstrating through us and the people around us so that as we go through different things in life, we will also be able to endure, not for our own glory and our own reputation, but for yours. We pray this in your son's precious holy name. Amen.